Welcome to the Metron Manager Podcast. Thank you for joining us as we work to recover the dignity and mission of vocation. Learn more at metronmanager.com. Faith in $5. $5, six countries, four months, and a one-way ticket to southern Russia. This is a book about faith, obedience, and miracles by Jonathan Nowlin. I hope you enjoy this reading of Faith in $5. Chapter 8, Journey of Faith. We arrived in Riga, Latvia later in the morning and took a bus to a remote part of Latvia where a YY mission center had been recently established. Now that we were traveling with a larger team again, the relational dynamic for Mike, Faith, and I was changed. We assimilated back into our larger team under the competent guidance of our team leader, John. It was a breath of fresh air to be in a larger group who were pulling together toward common goals. One of the most important lessons I learned over many years of mission service in the kingdom is the importance of team. I credit my early experiences growing up in YWAM missions communities for my foundations of understanding the importance of teams. Serving as part of a team is hard. It is the hard road, and yet it is the heart of God for his people. We are all created in the image and likeness of God, and God himself through Christ manifested the importance of relationships unity and the laying down of your life for your friends. My experiences and the wisdom I have acquired over the last years have proven over and over if you want to accomplish kingdom purposes, regardless of the sphere of society in which you engage, you have to have a team. This principle is largely echoed in some fashion in all aspects of human existence and endeavor. One alone cannot accomplish the task. Ecclesiastes 4, 9-12 says, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if you lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. If a cord of only three strands is not quickly torn apart, how much more a team of five, six, or ten strands? I can honestly say that in my 20 years of full-time kingdom service in over 60 countries, I have never seen just an individual or even just a pair of either friends or a husband and wife make significant headway or thrive in their mission endeavors. If you are considering stepping out in obedience to the place where the Lord is leading you, first look around you to identify those who will go with you, who will walk with you and fight the good fight alongside you. Even the Apostle Paul took along a team in the form of Barnabas, Mark, and Silas. And though not recorded, many more are likely to have come alongside Paul for certain seasons. My advice is to focus on building a team before you step out in obedience in the direction toward which the Lord is moving you. It is wise to make this your default setting, to find the people whose hearts the Lord is moving and calling, and then to spend quality time building your mobile church. In some rare cases, you may be the only one willing or available to attempt some assignment for the Lord, but in my experience, that is a rare occurrence. 
Take your time to build your mobile church or sodality, as it is called in missiological terms. There are two distinct expressions of the New Testament church that serve as helpful inspirations and validation of one unified church, the body of Christ. Modality is a term given to the expressions of what we might call the local church. Local churches often have the distinction of being geographically static, and therefore ministry scope is, by default, focused on multi-generational, long-term discipleship and cultivation of a community in the kingdom of God. The church in Corinth is a good example. Sodalities, on the other hand, are more like the band of volunteers who traveled with Paul the Apostle. Sodalities are distinct in that they are mobile, non-geographically static, task-oriented, and involve many specialists who are chosen or called by the Holy Spirit to a season of service. Here is one example of the way in which one might become part of a mobile church. Acts 13, 2-5 says, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. This small band of missionaries was formed by the calling or selection of the Holy Spirit to undertake a certain task in a certain season. I believe that the Lord still chooses and calls certain individuals to team up as his specialists, pooling their gifts, talents, resources around a common cause that the Lord has given them. This is exactly the way in which our team came together and functioned for a season of ministry in the former Soviet Union. Don't discount or marginalize those whom the Lord calls into the mobile church. The mobile church is just as much the church as local expressions of the church. Both expressions serve specific purposes in the kingdom of God, and both have the same need for diverse gifts and the anointing of God. 1 Corinthians 12.21 says, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. So when you form a team to undertake an assignment from the Lord, whether in a straightforward ministry context or in a creative undertaking such as forming a business that will bring hope by modeling the principles and truths of God to a hurting nation, you are the church. In the New Testament, all of the members of Apostle Paul's team, including himself, were part of local churches. For certain seasons and assignments, they became mobile church and thrived in anointing and effectiveness to accomplish the work the Lord had set before them. Much more can be said on this topic, however, for the purpose of understanding the importance of a team-based approach, this discussion should help stir your thoughts. Both local expressions of the church and also mobile teams are extensions of the body of Christ and are guided by the same head of the church, who is Christ. We found ourselves staying at the new YWAM Center, which was located about a three-hour drive from the capital city of Riga. On the upside, we had made it into Latvia. On the downside, we had to find a way to acquire visas, or else we would face a very real demonstration of the words the commander had spoken at the border when he said, I hope they let you out. Getting in was one thing, but when we next attempted to leave by train, our visas would again be checked at the border, and understandably, we wanted to avoid a situation of such intensity in the future. Now that we knew the requirements of the new law, we set about to learn how to get our documents in order. 
Through much inquiry, we discovered that the only way to get a visa once inside the country was to travel to the consulate building in downtown Riga to complete an application and receive a visa stamp. We faced a number of hurdles in this scenario. First, we only had a few days to accomplish this before we needed to move to another city to begin conducting our 10-day youth camp. Second, we had no transportation, and no buses ran from the countryside where we were staying into Riga in those days. Third, we were in the country illegally and faced the very real possibility of being arrested when we turned up asking for visas at the consulate. Our strategy was this. I would take five members of our team into Riga in two separate groups on two separate days. This way, if the Latvian authorities decided to arrest us, they would only get half of the group and not all six of us at once. This seemed reasonable, except that this plan required us to hitchhike into Riga and then back again to the remote village where we were staying, not once, but twice. As this miraculous journey of faith continued, another lesson I learned was that God cares about both the little things and the big things that concern us. Our concerns and the usual characteristics of life matter just as much to our Father in heaven as do the weighty things of the kingdom of God. Matthew 6, 31-33 says, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Some of us on the team had begun to discuss this aspect of the ways of our Heavenly Father. We had been so amazed at His timely and specific provisions for us that we had become convinced that not only did He truly want to provide for us, but also that He cared about what we cared about, even down to our personal preferences. As you draw close to the Lord in an intimate and personal relationship with Him, you begin to realize that what moves you moves Him, and what moves Him begins to move you. It really does become like a wonderful marriage relationship. When a husband and a wife are in a healthy and intimate marriage, they become intuitive about what the other is thinking and what matters to their spouse. One of the greatest joys in a husband's married life is to successfully anticipate what will bless his wife and to do all that he can to provide that blessing without waiting for his spouse to ask. Likewise, a wife who is lovingly cared for by her husband will also learn what her husband is thinking and what will bless him. In our walk with the Lord, we likewise begin to be intuitive about pleasing the Lord, and He also desires to bless us even when we haven't thought about a particular need or want. He knows the desires of our hearts. As this revelation grew in our hearts, we decided we wanted to put this understanding to a slightly humorous test. We found the perfect opportunity. The day to attempt my first hitchhiking adventure into Riga arrived. We walked a couple miles through a winding, single-lane farm road out to a regular two-lane highway. It was absolutely beautiful in the Latvian countryside. As with most of the former Soviet Union, there was at that time a huge disparity between those who had found a way to make money and the average citizens who still lived on Soviet-level wages, or had no income at all. Extreme wealth and extreme poverty were the nature of the economic environment. Most of those who had wealth at that time had acquired it through illicit means and were extremely protective of their newfound wealth and possessions. Due to these social dynamics, not many vehicles traveled the roads those days, and those that were out and about were likely driven by less than trustworthy individuals. These were our hitchhiking options. Needless to say, 
some focused and concerted prayer times preceded our first attempt to reach Riga. The three of us took up positions alongside of the road and attempted to flag down the few vehicles that passed by. The first car we spotted was a brand new Dodge Viper sports car that blasted past us at well over 100 miles an hour. Faith became frustrated at our lack of progress and said, I'm going to pray specifically for a sports car to pick us up, a red sports car. She was convinced that God would honor her specific prayer. Jeff, another guy from our team, and I were not so convinced. Faith was completely convinced, though. To our great surprise, we saw in the distance a red car approaching at a high rate of speed. As it drew closer, I thought out loud, no way. It was a red sports sedan. The driver passed us at easily 100 miles per hour and then slammed on his brakes, sliding dozens of feet before coming to a stop and backing up. We walked up to the vehicle and cautiously looked inside. It was obvious from the driver's clothes and slightly drunk demeanor that he was in some capacity involved in the mafia. I could always tell by looking at their shoes. They wore these totally relaxed workout suits as if they lived at the gym, but then they wore a $1,000 pair of loafers to complete the outfit. You could tell how high up the mafia food chain someone was by how expensive their shoes were. Under normal circumstances, we would have waved off this car after completing our initial assessment of the situation. By this time, we decided it would be okay to take him up on the offer of a ride because he had his little five-year-old son in the front seat with him. We figured he couldn't be up to much questionable activity with his child in tow. As we entered the vehicle, we realized that his son was severely injured. And through our broken Russian, we understood that the driver was on his way to the hospital in Riga to seek treatment for his son. It was a long ride, and the driver was in an all-consuming progress mode. He was not going to let anything slow his journey to Riga to get his son to the hospital. The way he drove, we wondered whether we would need a hospital ourselves. He increased his speed and began cruising at about 120 miles an hour, even around blind corners. We slowly and discreetly began to locate our seatbelts and buckled ourselves in, thinking that there was a high likelihood that he would miss a corner at some point. There was a lot of quiet prayer going on in the back seat. Faith was convinced, rightfully so, that God had heard her prayer and had sent her the exact vehicle she had asked for, so she was not concerned at all. The close call finally came. We were flying up a straight stretch of road when we saw a line of slowed vehicles ahead stretching for a distance of about a quarter mile. When the road began to incline upward, our driver simply entered the oncoming lane of traffic without missing a beat and commenced to pass the line of slower traffic. Sure enough, a semi-truck crested the horizon headed straight toward us. By this point, there was no way that the driver could maneuver behind the line of automobiles we were passing, and even if he came to a full stop, we were fully committed to this passing process. Faith was asleep in the middle between myself and Jeff, I looked at Jeff and he looked at me and we couldn't believe what was happening. We were literally watching death approach us head on and our driver didn't even flinch. He was facing off with this semi and was playing chicken to force the truck driver off the road to avoid a collision. Jeff said, should we wake her up? Faith was sound asleep in between us and I said, no, let her wake up in heaven. I could not believe the callous disregard for life that our driver was demonstrating. Even the life of his own son. It was like he was suicidal on some level. At the final second, the semi-truck veered off the road 
and roared past us in the ditch at easily over 60 miles per hour. The truck barely managed to stay upright and then swerved back onto the road behind us. Our menace to society driver finished passing the slow line of autos as if nothing had happened. Jeff and I looked at each other with eyes wide. Here was another close call that the Lord had delivered us from. Our hearts were moved with compassion for our driver. These individuals had thought that striking it rich at any cost would bring happiness and meaning to their lives. However, once they arrived at their goal, they often realized they had only succeeded in giving themselves more expensive and dangerous problems than they faced before. The trap of materialism had already sprung on these young post-Soviet men. They were often hopeless and nihilistic, becoming a reckless danger to themselves and to those around them. The only hope for this broken society was the love and transformational work of Jesus Christ. We reached the outskirts of Riga and as quickly as possible exited the red sports car at the first stoplight we came to. The driver didn't even acknowledge us or our hasty exit. This was a particularly awkward moment. We walked into a large building full of complicated hallways and offices looking for the visa office. As strange as it sounds, that was the way visas were handled just prior to our untimely arrival in Latvia. One entered the country, then visited the visa office to obtain a visa. So knowing now that the law had changed and that we were technically in Latvia illegally was another test of our confidence and faith in God. If he could specifically answer prayer for the type of car we wanted for a ride to Riga, he could give us favor with the authorities in the visa office. We found the correct office and approached the window nervously. The lady behind the glass partition asked for our passports and carefully looked through them for what seemed an eternity. Finally, she looked up at us and asked, how did you get in this country? I knew this was likely going to be the first question we were asked. The guy at the border let us in, I truthfully answered. She just shook her head in disbelief. Finally, she looked up at us again and with very serious intent said, don't ask for any favors. We did not. Patiently, we sat waiting in the little visa office seating area until she was done processing visas for us. Until she curtly handed us back our passports, we were not sure whether she was going to give us visas or have us arrested. With a huge sigh of relief, we exited that building and rejoiced at God's provision and protection. What a miracle. By this point, I was becoming accustomed to the miraculous and deeply personal intervention by the Lord throughout this faith journey. I believe God used these experiences to shape my spiritual eyesight. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We have to be able to see beyond what is seen and what is temporal. Seeing the unseen is seeing reality through God's eyes. One sign of true spiritual maturity is being able to see what is eternal through the dominant haze of the temporal or earthly realm. The question we need to ask ourselves is, what do I see when I look at a given situation? Do I see through the haze and lock onto the hidden eternal realities that are clearly visible to our Lord? Or do I only see the haze and fixate on the difficulties and confusion of the circumstances we must navigate on this earth? I realized as this story unfolded that God was clearly creating a life-shaping scenario that could only be truly understood by seeing every circumstance through his eyes. I began to see the miraculous when others saw only the misery and hardships. I began to celebrate the power of God when others felt like God had abandoned them. It was all about learning to let my spirit see clearly and not look at the things which are seen.
Years later, my friend Mike and I were sitting in a park in London having lunch. We were reminiscing about this particular faith journey and all of the wild adventures that had been packed into a five-month experience. By this time, I had a deep, spiritually-minded understanding on every aspect of this incredible God story, yet I found that Mike did not. During our conversation, I was thinking back and highlighting particular miracles and epic displays of God's power on our behalf. Mike sat thoughtfully for a few minutes, and I could tell he was processing my perspective. At this point, Mike and I had not had a chance to visit each other for a couple years, and I had never found a chance to process my faith journey we had experienced together. Mike spoke up and said, I wish I'd had the spiritual eyes to see the things the way you did. Right there, I realized a real-world truth. Two people can go through the exact same circumstance, knowing and following the exact same God and Father, have the exact same resolution to an experience, and yet see the entirety of the story very, very differently. My perspective was completely informed through the lens of the miracles of God, while Mike's was more informed by the difficulty of the various circumstances we had experienced. His general recollection was negative and focused on the very real difficulties we had experienced. My perspective was completely focused on the chain of miracles that proved the power of God and his desire to personally guide his children through this life. All I can say, looking back many years later, is that the whole experience of your life will be shaped and viewed as either a miracle to be celebrated or a series of cold difficulties for which you subconsciously or even consciously blame God. Thank you for listening to the Metron Manager Podcast, presented by Jonathan Nowlin and the Metron Manager Project. Remember, God has given you permission and a commission to work. Learn more at metronmanager.com.